Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, one film at a time, through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from another classic film made in 1998, Saving Private Ryan. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. If you listen to my episode analyzing the score to Schindler's List, you'll remember that I mentioned that Steven Spielberg showed no battle scenes in that film, despite it being set during World War II, and specifically dealing with wartime issues. Spielberg definitely made up for the lack of war scenes in Schindler's List, which weren't really needed, when he took on what would probably be his most ambitious film ever, Saving Private Ryan. While nearly every member of the cast and crew pushed the envelope in terms of what could be shown and heard on screen, the one person who seemed to dial down his duties was composer John Williams. Many fans regard his score to Saving Private Ryan as, and I'm quoting here from actual reviews and internet postings, dull, uninteresting, and a waste of Williams' time. But there are many out there who find this score to be an amazing contribution by Williams, and I will say I am probably in the middle of that spectrum, but much closer to the positive side of it, especially after conducting some research and putting a lot of thought into the mechanics of this score. I hope by the end of this episode, those who listening or listening find this score to be, as you say, dull, uninteresting, and a waste of Williams's time, will have a more positive outlook on this score. And I have a co-host today to join me in the discussion. Let's welcome Richard Fish to the show. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast today, Jeff. I'm really honored to be here to talk about such an impactful film. Saving Private Ryan has, in my view, an understated but perfectly suited score. So with all due respect to my other co-host, I am very excited that you reached out to me to be a co-host, Richard, because we're both graduates of the University of Texas at Austin. And I'm always happy to talk with a fellow Longhorn, and especially a fellow Longhorn who's a John Williams fan. So tell the listeners about yourself and a bit about your journey to becoming a John Williams fan. Well, my day job is ophthalmology. I subspecialize in diseases and surgery of the retina. But my passion is music, listening, studying, and playing music. I'm a drummer and I can noodle a little bit on guitar, but your podcast really reawakened my love for film scores in general and John Williams music in particular. I was listening to the music of Johnny Williams, as he was known at the time, as a kid even though I wouldn't know for many years who he was. Like a lot of kids, I loved that show Lost in Space, the cheesy mid-60s sci-fi show. During its three-year run, the show had two different main themes, both by John Williams, and both of which were quite good and memorable to this day. I was a big Irwin Allen fan, not only of Lost in Space, but Land of the Giants and Time Tunnel on TV, and then later a fan of his disaster movies, The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno, which involved John Williams, of course. Along comes The Cowboys in 1972, which is just my favorite John Wayne film. I even made my children sit down and watch it with me. It has a very memorable soundtrack that was imprinted into my brain, and I agree with what you said in a previous episode that it is very reminiscent of the music of Aaron Copland. Of course, there was Star Wars, and I played out the grooves on that record in 1977. Back in the day, if we wanted to re-experience the thrills of a movie, all we had was playing the soundtrack over and over. I also played snare drum in high school and college marching bands, and in the 70s and 80s, who didn't play John Williams' music? 
Then along comes Saving Private Ryan in 1998. And I honestly didn't remember the music playing a big role in the film. It was good at setting a mood, and even though I always, always stay in the theater through the closing credits, I didn't remember the lovely piece that plays over the end credits. I'm a bit embarrassed to mention that now. Well, that's okay. I'm sure you know it well now. Yeah, I had a pretty good reason to do so recently. In June of 2019, the University of Texas Longhorn Alumni Band, those of us in our 20s to 90s who were members of the UT Longhorn Band during our college days, was invited along with a dozen or so high school groups to play at two ceremonies at the American cemeteries in Brittany and at Omaha Beach in Normandy, France, for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. On June 6th, D-Day, we were at the American cemetery in Brittany. It was a bright, chilly day. The honor guards, bagpipes, and marching bands were all assembled in front of the Granite Chapel with the French and the United States flags waving. Four veterans of the Normandy invasion well into their 90s spoke sometimes humorous and always touching tales of their days in the service. We played the national anthems of the United States and France and then Hymn to the Fallen, the piece John Williams wrote for the end credits of Saving Private Ryan. I play the snare drum in the Longhorn Alumni Band, but on this piece only one snare drummer played the part, a good friend and classmate. So I wasn't even playing, the musical term here is tacit, but I was able to hear and experience this very emotional, evocative piece from inside the band. At every rehearsal back in Austin, and at every rehearsal in our two performances in France, I was just mesmerized and touched by the melody and harmonies being passed from one section to the other, and just cried during this piece, every single time. The next day, June 7th, there was a similar program at the American Cemetery at Omaha Beach. Truly one of the most beautiful spots on earth. There are these sweeping views of the English Channel, gorgeous mature trees and rolling hills, and these endless grave markers from so many fallen soldiers. Exactly the setting for the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. Oh, I don't blame you for getting emotional while playing Hymn to the Fallen. It is a very remarkable piece of music, which we will discuss later in this episode. You were very fortunate to have the opportunity to play this piece in the place that Williams might have been thinking about as he was sitting at his piano in Boston putting those notes to paper. So the Normandy Cemetery was one of the shooting locations for the film, which was shot entirely in Europe, specifically France, England, and Ireland. The big Omaha beach battle was filmed on a beach in Ireland because the actual beach was off limits and had been renovated as a tourist site, which included the cemetery. I'm sure there are many podcasts and documentaries out there devoted specifically to talking about the D-Day invasion, so I think I might seek that out now that I've done all this research. Everything was shot with the goal of making it look like a documentary, especially the action sequences, as if the camera is held by a documentary crew just capturing the action. It's one reason why John Williams' music is not heard in the battle scenes, to give what we see a sense of unflinching realism. Williams and Spielberg, now having worked together on 17 films, know just where to place music and where to leave it out, and just let the picture speak unadorned. I think Spielberg really wants us to experience deeply just what it was like to be in a Higgins boat, to hit the beach, and any bit of music that distracts us and allows us to detach, look around the theater, and remind ourselves that, hey, this is only a movie, just won't work for this film. The absence of music actually immerses us deeper into the experience. And there's just about 45 minutes of score in this two-hour and 45-minute movie, about six minutes less than Schindler's List. 
It's not the least amount of music Williams wrote for a Spielberg film because I think there's much less in the Sugarland Express, but the lack of music almost makes its appearance that much more special when it does come through the speakers. Another big reason why music isn't needed a lot in this film, particularly in the quieter scenes, is because the actors are extremely good in this. At the top of this ladder is Tom Hanks in his first movie with Spielberg. The two had known each other for many years, and I believe they had their first true interaction when Hanks was working on Forrest Gump, which was directed by Spielberg's very good friend Robert Zemeckis. The idea for Saving Private Ryan hadn't reached Spielberg yet, but the two wanted to work together soon. So after Hanks reunited with Ron Howard for Apollo 13 in 1995, and made his directorial debut with That Thing You Do in 1996, Hanks gathered at a special boot camp with the actors who would be under his command. And what a group of actors this is. Tom Sizemore, Edward Burns, Van Diesel, Adam Goldberg, Barry Pepper, Giovanni Ribisi, and Jeremy Davies. With the exception of Sizemore, who was 35 at the time of filming, all of the other actors were in their mid to late 20s, looking very much the part of this diverse crew and not really known to mainstream movie audiences. Well, maybe Edward Burns after his breakout film The Brothers McMullen, which he wrote, directed, and starred in in 1995. And then there's Matt Damon. If you haven't seen the film and don't want to be spoiled by some of the plot, now's a good time to stop and go watch the film because you're going to learn some things that might ruin your first viewing. So Damon plays the title character that this company of soldiers is sent to bring home after his three brothers died. And the film was coming out just four months after he and Ben Affleck won Oscars for writing Goodwill Hunting. His name and face were on the movie poster, which kind of gave away his role in the film, especially after you watched the first half hour or so. But after Hanks, he was the biggest star of the cast. So with everything filmed in remarkable detail, Spielberg and Williams sat down to watch a cut of the film. I don't know when the discussion began to keep music out of the Omaha Beach sequence, but I really hope neither Spielberg nor Williams ever entertained the thought of putting music into that amazing 23-minute sequence. But something that was immediately discussed was using the Boston Symphony Orchestra to perform the score. The group had recorded a few cues for Schindler's List, but not all of them, and this would be the first time they would do a complete score by John Williams, who had been their lead conductor for 22 years. Spielberg said he liked the idea of performing with the BSO in Symphony Hall because in that space, quote, you get a rich, warm sound off the walls and ceiling, and you do hear the air. Symphony Hall is an instrument too, end quote. I kind of like that statement, and it is true for this score. You do hear the air. And the great thing about using the BSO is you get lots of great instrumentation choices, which is what makes the score stand out more than the notes being played. And the first time we hear this music is in a three-minute prologue that features the best music in the film, at least in my opinion. Now, it starts with the opening credits, with a horn statement of a rising and falling musical statement, then repeated again as the title of the movie shows up. And that's significant for reasons we will reveal very shortly.
That's Boston Pops principal horn player Gus Sebring with that solo. Now Richard, I'm sure you love that horn statement, but as a drum player, your ears probably perk up more on the snare drums there. Jeff, I love hearing the snare drum throughout this score used as a principal instrument. That's true. But what really perks up my ears is the striking resemblance of that horn statement to the opening of Aaron Copland's 1942 composition, A Lincoln Portrait. I ran this by a friend of mine who says the comparison is pretty appropriate. Both pieces are in the same key and use similar intervals and similar rhythms. I call this the Ryan theme, and it's sometimes used when Private Ryan is being discussed. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that, Richard. I never connected this material as a theme in all my years of listening to this score until I was watching the film to prepare for this podcast. And as I slowly began to listen to it, I also was identifying it with Private Ryan. In the case of the opening credits, playing it as the title comes on screen kind of creates it as a leitmotif for Ryan, just like the main theme for Star Wars is identified with Luke Skywalker. And this theme will come and go often in this opening sequence as we see an elderly man walking ahead of his family at the Normandy Cemetery. Again, this is a spoiler alert. But John Williams is putting this theme in as a sort of giveaway that this man is indeed Private James Ryan, even though we're not supposed to know that for another two hours and 40 minutes. So there's something more about that comparison to the Copeland piece that I want to bring up quickly. On the last episode of this podcast, covering the music for Amistad, my co-host Brian Martell, who told me that he was one of the people who found the Saving Private Ryan score dull, commented that he felt some of the similarities in the Americana feel of both scores were pretty much obvious, and I have discovered two reasons for that. The first is the Private Ryan theme, which sounds much like the opening of the theme for John Quincy Adams in Amistad. And here are those notes from Amistad. I told Brian that I didn't think Spielberg or Williams were able to let go of their work on Amistad, and it definitely carried over to the theme for Private Ryan. And another good reason why the scores have some similarities is the use of Tim Morrison in both scores, and he is great at putting that stately American flavor into his performances on the trumpet. I really like the way that that solo trumpet and then two trumpets play a somewhat dissonant harmony together. Although the melody is nothing like it, it kind of has that same elegiac feeling as Taps, the solemn tune that's played at military funerals. In my research, I had read that the two trumpet players were positioned in the balcony of Symphony Hall, while the rest of the BSO played on the stage, and I think you can kind of hear that far-away quality in the recording. Yes, it does sound like they're up in the heavens, maybe playing um, from the clouds. So Morrison is performing this duet with another BSO regular, Thomas Rolfs, and that counter melody, The Two Trade-Off, is a nice compositional touch by John Williams. After that trumpet performance comes a goosebump moment for me. So the elderly James Ryan ventures from the footpath onto the grass toward the grave markers, 
and the bass plays real deep for his first steps before the violins take over to play what will be the main theme of the film. I don't know why, but that one measure of the score with the bass creates a very visceral emotion as we see the elderly James Ryan start his walk on the grass. And the snare drums you'll hear sync up with close shots of grave markers crossing the screen as we follow James on the grass. And then, the big musical build-up to the start of the two-hour and 40-minute flashback. Jeff, as we mentioned earlier, the D-Day invasion scene doesn't get any music, just the incredible sound design by Gary Rydstrom. As we've said, the absence of music in strategic sections of this film really allows the collaboration of the sound designer, sound effects, and mixing team to take center stage. We hear explosions, bullets whizzing by, hitting metal, penetrating water, and hitting a lot of soldiers. Finally, after 23 minutes, the music returns as Tom Hanks' Captain Miller takes a drink of water and looks out at the remnants of the carnage that we have just experienced. Like Captain Miller, we need a chance to catch our breath, and John Williams' music helps us do that. It's a very solemn piece. Snare, low brass, and strings eventually give way to the full orchestra, playing what you called the main theme in the opening, Jeff. I call it the Band of Brothers theme, and it plays when we're meant to feel the camaraderie of soldiers living or lost, 
and it will play as the camera floats over the shore full of dead bodies to rest on a dead soldier with the last name Ryan on his backpack. This continues to a new scene of endless women at typewriters writing stacks of death notification letters to family, surely the saddest civilian job imaginable. One woman discovers three dead Ryan brothers and escalates it up the chain of command as the music cues, trumpets and percussion shift to the Ryan theme. This is the first four minutes of the track called Omaha Beach on the soundtrack CD, a track that runs nine minutes, like this lengthy sequence in the film. For a long time, I never enjoyed listening to it away from the film because it didn't seem to have much to it, just coloring in the lines. But when I picked out that Ryan theme when I watched the film in preparation for this episode, the music really began to stand out for me because now John Williams was giving us musical indications that this moment has significance. 
And I'm really falling in love with the trumpet duets too. It's so much better than just having that solo trumpet. As I mentioned earlier, the orchestration for this score is what is really standing out for me. Now, perhaps this is coincidence, Richard, but in the end of this sequence, Harv Presnell as General George Marshall reads a note from Abraham Lincoln to the mother of five sons killed in the Civil War. You point out the similarity with the Ryan theme and Aaron Copeland's Lincoln portrait. Now, did Williams know about that composition and use it as inspiration? He has said he never listens to previously composed works for inspiration, but maybe Spielberg used it as a temp track for part of the movie. What do you think, Richard? Well, maybe so, Jeff. There's a great video that Steven Spielberg himself shot while he was present for all of the recording sessions in Symphony Hall with the BSO. Tom Hanks was there as well, and at one point, Hanks reads Lincoln's so-called Bixby letter to all of the assembled orchestra. It was a moving experience for everyone there. I can't help but believe that with the grand themes of sacrifice and leadership that are found in the screenplay, that somehow a bit of Copeland's tribute piece to Abraham Lincoln might have unintentionally found its way into the score. After about a minute of the main theme as our company starts their mission to find Private Ryan, there's no music for about 40 minutes. Nothing in the scene involving a sniper killing Vin Diesel's character, nothing in the scene with the wrong Private Ryan, nothing in the long church scene as well. It comes back as the soldiers are looking through dog tags of dead men to see if Ryan is one of them. Wade, the medic, stops them from joking about the dead soldiers in front of an American squadron that's passing by. The music and the scene are a bit ghoulish, with the trumpet and woodwinds aiding in that. By this point, Captain Miller is starting to get frustrated with the mission, and that's underscored by the Ryan theme. Right then, we finally meet a soldier who knows Private Ryan, and we get our first sense of hope, and the Ryan theme returns. The Band of Brothers theme plays as Miller plans the trip to the only location in the film that's fictional, the village of Rommel.
Richard, I detected a key change in the music when we find out that Ryan might be alive in a nearby town. Now, did I hear that accurately? Jeff, I'm not sure about a key change, but the entire tone and feeling of the music does change quite a bit as they hear some good news about Ryan possibly being alive in Ramel. Yeah, the tone should definitely change. There's a little bit of optimism in there. So let's touch on the death of Wade a couple of scenes later. His actual death doesn't get music until the final seconds, and the bulk of the music that takes up the track called Wade's Death on the soundtrack is scoring the soldiers getting revenge on a German soldier and more of the aftermath. The part of the music I want to highlight is during the moment when Captain Miller is overcome with emotion after Wade's death. This is a heartbreaking scene because you believed Captain Miller was a rock who definitely wouldn't show weaknesses. He finds a hidden spot and lets the tears flow, while William starts this moment with the Private Ryan theme as Miller studies the map. Then, three haunting notes that repeat on the strings while Hanks lets out the emotions. The notes fade away as he collects himself and puts that stoic face back on. There's also the incredibly gripping scene where a German soldier is digging a grave and we suspect that the Americans intend to execute him. This leads to a bitter argument within the company with threats of murder and desertion. Contrast this immensely suspenseful buildup of tension with no music to Jaws where the tension is ratcheted upwards and upwards by the music. This is the work of two very mature partners, director and composer. As the chaos intensifies, we hear Miller blurt out, I'm a schoolteacher, and the French horns, followed by trombones and then the clarinets, lay down the underscore for Miller describing his life back home and how he's changed. And again, I felt some relief as I was watching. Okay, here's some music now. I can finally relax a bit.
And then we finally meet our guy. James Ryan's introduction is handled without any music. None. Not even his theme that's been popping up randomly since the beginning of the film. That is probably the most interesting decision to leave music out in the entire film. Oh yeah, I remember people chattering in the theater during that scene because we forgot that Matt Damon was supposed to be in this movie, and then there he is. So as an audience, we're kind of taken out of the experience, and we realize there is the actor we knew was going to be in the movie. No objection to the absence of music, but I agree, it was a weird decision to leave it out. And there's no music in the scene when Captain Miller tells Ryan about his brothers, and when Ryan decides to stay and guard the bridge. This would be a scene where you'd normally expect music, maybe even very sad music. We do get music a bit later for the preparations to defend the bridge against an incoming German attack. The instruments in this cue, horns, timpani, snare drum, and strings, and the underscore itself seem pretty conventional to me and made me wonder if Spielberg and Williams wanted some piece of the film to harken back to the great World War II films of the 1960s.
It's a very exciting build-up to the final battle without making it too much like the music would be in a really overdone Hollywood film. It felt a little subdued, kind of like the music in The Towering Inferno before Paul Newman and Steve McQueen blow up the water tanks to flood the building and put out the fire. So I never really got emotional over Captain Miller's death in this movie, I guess because I knew it would come. It's the epilogue with the older James Ryan that usually gets me choked up. And this time it really did, after Ryan talks to Captain Miller's grave marker. There is a variation on the Ryan theme as he talks with his wife about wanting to be a good man, a little bit of magic from Gus Sebring on the horn, and then our trumpet masters come in with a proud melody as Ryan salutes the grave marker. I haven't even played the music yet and I'm getting chills thinking about it. And as it should, the score closes out with Ryan's theme. Jeff, as you know, many critics call Saving Private Ryan the best World War II film ever made. But many critics disliked the beginning and ending bookends. I didn't really care for the elder Ryan asking his wife if he'd led a good life. That seemed a bit unnecessary. But, having walked through that exact spot twice, most recently last year, I really have come to believe that Normandy is hallowed ground. There aren't many places where all of human history hinges on a solitary geographical location.
I know there are criticisms of the cemetery scenes, but overall, I found them profoundly moving. And even those who have issues with this score can't badmouth the music written for the end credits. It's the second time Williams will write music for the end credits that isn't structured around thematic material from the actual underscore. The first time he did this was for the 1974 movie Earthquake, but this time he creates something that has taken a life of its own beyond the film. The piece is called Hymn to the Fallen, which is kind of a misnomer because there are no lyrics in this piece. Just the Boston Symphony Orchestra and the Tanglewood Festival Chorus vocalizing a wordless melody. Normally, John Williams would write a mature theme like this and sprinkle excerpts or variations throughout the score. This wasn't done. He wrote Hymn to the Fallen last. As he describes it, it's, quote, like a requiem to the people lost in the film, elegant and discreet, end quote. I rewatched the film on satellite TV, and as is the norm these days, showing the full end credits, I guess like broadcasting a marching band halftime performance, has gone the way of the buggy whip. If you've only seen this film through a TV presentation, it's likely you've never heard Hymn to the Fallen played in full, and that's a shame. A person wanting to experience what, to me, is the musical high point of the film can turn to various renditions on YouTube. You can stream the film or watch the end credits all the way through or buy the soundtrack CD. It's really an incredibly moving piece of music all on its own. But I can't help but wonder if it had been composed first, whether we might have heard some echoes or adaptations of, of that beautiful melody and even those beautiful counterpoints in the latter part of the song in some of the more powerful scenes in the film. Hmm. Well, its role as a sort of eulogy for the soldiers who fought in the war means it might not have worked in the film. It isn't yet time to really mourn the dead while the plot is progressing, even after Omaha Beach and other scenes. The score does have a somber tone throughout, but adding this melody might have been too much of a downer. I will note that the Private Ryan theme does appear twice in the film version of Hymn to the Fallen, but three times on the soundtrack version, as the first 23 seconds of this piece was not put into the film.
The best part of this composition is the surge in the orchestra and chorus around the 3 minute and 30 second mark. It doesn't become triumphant, but the orchestra simply plays stronger while still maintaining that quiet dignity. So I'll share a story real quick about my first viewing of this film, which was during a trip to Los Angeles in summer 1998. I was with a friend who was a big war buff and really enjoyed the film, but he was anxious to leave the theater somewhere in the middle of Him to the Fallen. I think he's one of those people who just doesn't sit around for end credits music. I told him I'll meet him in the lobby because I wanted to hear this music. And I don't think he really understood that 80% of the reason why I wanted to buy a ticket for this movie was to hear John Williams' music. And I always stay seated when John Williams' music is playing in the end credits. That goes back even to Schindler's List uh, five years before this movie. The day after seeing Saving Private Ryan, I went to a record store and bought the CD and couldn't stop playing him to the Fallen. 
I was so sure that this six-minute piece of music alone was worth a sixth Academy Award for John Williams. The Maestro score was one of the 11 Academy Award nominations that Saving Private Ryan received. The film could have received 12 if the Academy had nominated Jeremy Davies' heartbreaking performance as Corporal Upham. And that's a snub that still hits me every time I watch the movie. And even those who were part of the film's chief competition at the Oscars were ready to applaud Saving Private Ryan as the Best Picture winner. And I'm sure everyone listening knows how that turned out. Shakespeare in Love won Best Picture at the Oscars, no doubt helped by the millions of dollars Miramax spent on publicity for its film. Spielberg won the much-deserved directing Oscar, as did editor Michael Kahn, cinematographer Janusz Kaminski, and the sound team, with two Oscars of their own. Unfortunately, there was not to be another Oscar added to John Williams' mantle. While most people think Shakespeare in Love's Best Picture win is the shock of the night, Williams losing to Nicola Piovani's score for Life is Beautiful was the biggest letdown. Don't get me wrong, Richard, I like the score to Life is Beautiful, but the issue comes with the category placement. I feel that Life is Beautiful is a comedy, even though it takes place mostly in a Holocaust concentration camp, and it didn't deserve to be in the original dramatic score category, but rather in the comedy score category. Well, Jeff, that really was a banner year. I adored Shakespeare in Love and Life is Beautiful, but I vividly remember being shocked at Shakespeare in Love winning Best Picture over Saving Private Ryan. But Oscar voting seems to be fickle and unpredictable. As for Best Score, I wonder if John Williams is somehow the Meryl Streep of composers. Each of their prolific bodies of work is so incredibly strong that they'll be nominated almost every year. Streep holds the record for acting with 21 nominations and only three wins. But every year, Oscar voters might be thinking, well, once again, Streep, or once again, Williams. And their Oscars come sprinkled periodically throughout their brilliant careers, and not always for their best works. Oh, yes, this is not going to be the last time I'm screaming at the Academy for not giving John Williams an Oscar. But the the soundtrack to Saving Private Ryan was nominated for a Grammy, competing with Williams' work on Amistad from the previous year, as well as Ennio Morricone's Bullworth, Gabriel Yard's City of Angels, and Lalo Schifrin's Rush Hour. All four of the nominees had won Grammys before, and adding another one to his collection would be, drum roll please, John Williams for Saving Private Ryan. This was his 17th Grammy win and ninth in this category, a staggering amount of trophies. What's still surprising is that Hymn to the Fallen was not included as a nominee for Best Instrumental Composition, which should have been a slam dunk. Now, Williams received another Grammy nomination that year for an album he produced after he completed work on Saving Private Ryan. This one involved the London Symphony Orchestra, marking the first time in 15 years he had worked with the Esteem Orchestra. The album was called Gershwin Fantasy, a collection of pieces written by George Gershwin that featured violinist Joshua Bell and even John Williams himself on piano.
The album was nominated for Best Classical Crossover Album at the Grammys, but lost to an album of tango music featuring, of all people, cellist Yo-Yo Ma. The collaboration with the London Symphony Orchestra should not be a surprise to those who know what film would follow a year after Saving Private Ryan. Williams was working on securing the LSO's talents once again for a return to the galaxy far, far away for the Star Wars prequels. But he had a quick request from old friend Chris Columbus first to write a score for his touching family drama Stepmom that was coming out at the end of 1998. And that's the score I'll be sharing with you on the next episode of The Baton. Before we go, I want to share one of the lasting legacies of Saving Private Ryan, and it came in the extended collaboration between Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. The two will make four more theatrical films, but will also work to bring more stories from World War II to life. The two of them will serve as executive producers of the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers in 2001, and then produce The Pacific, another World War II series. I love Band of Brothers very much, but I found The Pacific to be a little lifeless. But Spielberg and Hanks have been commended often for telling these stories, and it all started with this one fictional tale in Saving Private Ryan. Richard, it has been a blast discussing the score to Saving Private Ryan with you. I really hope we've changed hearts and minds about this score, but it is anything but dull if you understand what you're hearing. Jeff, I had a great time. I think this soundtrack, and especially Hymn to the Fallen, is really something special. I'd encourage your listeners to give some mindful attention to this glorious piece of music apart from the film, maybe on service-related holidays, or maybe every June 6th, the anniversary of D-Day. I want to thank you for having me, and thanks to my friends Paul English and David Craig for helping this drummer understand some of the more arcane music theory aspects of the score. Also, what a great body of work that you're creating here, Jeff, so that present and future film and musical score aficionados can study the works of the great maestro, John Williams. Well, I hope that is true, especially future film aficionados. So everyone, please, dear listeners, take the time to post a review of this show on Apple Podcasts so this series can get a boost in the rankings and bring more exposure to the show. And tell your friends about it as well. It is never too late to join this journey through John Williams' illustrious film career. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, the baton is down. Mm-hmm.